Hi there. You're listening to the Jasmine Star Show. I am so happy you're here. My guest today, Rebecca Minkoff, is an industry leader with accessible luxury handbags, accessories, footwear, and apparel. Yes. Although all of that sounds appealing, we're not talking about fashion necessarily. We're going to be talking about the business that is fashion, in addition to advice for business owners. So Rebecca has retail stores and international locations, and her products are distributed all over the world. And she is arguably one of the most successful designers of her time. And I'm so honored to welcome her to the Jasmine Star Show today. In this episode, we discuss how to communicate effectively as a female leader, as well as how to use networking, partnerships, and collaborations to scale your business. Yo, I have to tell you that after this conversation with Rebecca, I realized she is the queen. Like I have very few conversations with people who can rival this woman's tenacity, her chutzpah, and her downright intellect on what needs to be done to grow a business. But before we get into our conversation, I want to let you know to stay tuned to the end of this episode because I'm gonna share with you a completely free way that you can get in on a coaching session with me. So are you excited? Oh yeah, talk about a teaser. Well, let's listen in to mine and Rebecca's interview and I will reveal the details afterward. Friends, I could not be more excited to have a conversation with a brilliant mind and a very kind soul, like y'all know. I normally invite guests on the show who I know personally or I've engaged with in their personal capacity. The difference here is that every so often I bring somebody on this show who I feel like I know, and then the show provides an opportunity for us to meet in real life. Friends, I have to tell you, there are two types of people in the world, people who look at something and think it's great and fun and amazing, and then other people who look at something and see a business spawn from it. I have to tell you that the first time I went to New York City, I was 17 years old, myself and my twin sister. My dad took us to New York. I'm the daughter of an immigrant, and his like life's mission was to take his kids to see the Statue of Liberty and Ellis Island and really get the American dream. So we did every touristy thing, including buying those like foam Statue of Liberty hats, and I love of New York t-shirts. And lo and behold, years later, Rebecca sees a very similar shirt and decides to create a business. And it's a chance she sees her friend wear it. So friends, let's talk about the difference between myself and Rebecca Minkoff. I wear the shirts. She looks at a shirt and sees a business opportunity. Welcome to the show, Rebecca Minkoff. How did an I love New York t-shirt change the arc of your career and life? Well, thank you for having me. Um, I definitely didn't see an opportunity at first. What I did see, however, was I was in the Bahamas before I made the shirt and I wanted to buy something as a token. And everywhere I went was just cheesy, touristy stuff made in China, not the Bahamas. And I did like the like Aruba shirts that were cut up and they had the beads dangling. And I was like, this is so cool. But when I get home to New York, like, I don't want to say Aruba. I want to say New York. So instead of, you know, buying something there, I waited till I came home and I just for myself, made a shirt and I took a shirt and DIY was a thing then. This was like pre-Etsy. <laughs> so it was like, ooh, that's so cool. She made her own shirt. My sister-in-law wanted one. A bunch of my friends wanted one. And my sister-in-law wore one to dinner and a well-known famous actress asked her about it. And then she wanted one. And the rest is definitely not history, but I sent it to her right before 9-11. She wore it right after 9-11 on Jay mm. Leno. And when my name was said on national TV, the power of TV back then, nothing like it is now, you know, I, I, that's all I did. I just made that shirt for months. You know, I didn't live an extravagant life. I was avoiding my roommate, couldn't pay rent, could barely eat, but like that 
that fueled me that, that I was like, Oh, there's something here and I can make a business out of it. I don't know what I'm doing, but let me see what happens. Uh, incredible. So a mention of your name on the Jay Leno show. And now you have over nine, your apparel, your handbags, footwear, jewelry, accessories are sold in over 900 stores worldwide. And you definitely even mentioned it didn't have happened overnight. So what were some of the things that you look back and you attribute your success? Because from what I know and heard, and I have listened to multiple podcasts, did you come from a background of like entrepreneurs? Did you know that you wanted to start a business or you thrusted into that and you rose to the occasion? You know, my parents uh, started as entrepreneurs full-time later on in life when they started their own businesses, but growing up, my mom did Amway, and so the entire garage was filled with Amway products, and so whenever I would want to go see her, she'd be in there selling, and then she'd give me all the expired samples for my makeup <laughs> and stuff, so I think it started young. You know, she also used to sell things at the flea market every Saturday, and I was like, I want to sell something at the flea market. This is so cool, so she let me set up a little card table. I spent all week making stuff. No one bought anything that I made, but I was so excited about the idea that I could create something and I could put it out for sale. So I probably runs in our blood. Um, Mm -hmm. my brother's my co-founder and CEO and yeah, but I think, I think when I saw the things that worked and the things that worked then still work now is being hungry, seizing opportunity and expanding and augmenting the opportunity. And you have to get really comfortable with asking because I think so many people are scared to ask for fear of being told no. I have bad news for you. You're going to get told no all the time. I'm still told no, but Mm -hmm. it's just that you just ask someone else and you keep sort of asking. And um, that's what I did then is I asked very specifically for what I needed and I was persistent and I was humble and I was grateful. Okay, so we're going to spill the tea if you don't mind. I, mean, I, I have notes, but then somebody says something and I'm like, I want to poke here for a second. So if you don't mind and if yeah. you don't want to answer, I totally get it. Yeah. What was the first no that you got that hurt deeply? And then what's one of your most recent no's? We don't have to talk about people or names, but something that you had presented that was a hard no, because like I really think it's calibration like all these years later and all of your massive success that no is still a thing in your life? Oh, for sure. So I think the first no that hurt was a store that I really wanted to be in was like, no, we're not going to purchase, you know, your creations. Um, they did, however, per, you know, say, we'll take it on consignment. But I was like, oh, so it's not good enough for you to take the risk, mm. you know? That, so that was, that was, I think, a, a tough no early on. Um, the most recent no that really frustrated me There was, um, I don't know, I guess an automobile company that was interested in getting into the fashion space and doing partnerships with designers. And they asked me to participate in something and do like a bunch of free stuff. And I was like, I'll do this knowing I'm going to build a relationship with these people. And then when it comes time to resume our partnership conversations, it'll be a shoo-in because I'll make them so happy. Mm -hmm. So I did all this stuff. It performed really well comes time to get serious. And they're like, we just don't think you're the right fit. And I was like, cool. I'm so happy that I did all this free work for you. And you just said no. And obviously nothing to cry about. Wasn't life-threatening. Didn't, didn't Mm -hmm. hurt my business, but we get, you know, told no every day. There's someone saying no. Mm. So obviously the small and petty Betty side of myself, I'm like, did you ever go back to that store and like have a Julia Roberts, like pretty woman, like a moment and be like, big mistake, huge. <laughs> like, did they ever take your stuff back? Not on consignment. So he said, if you sell enough of these, then I'll think about buying them. And I was mm-hmm. like, I'll put two on consignment. And then I went home and I printed postcards from my home computer, which was like, 
again, 2001. So printers were not that great. And then I went to Union Square and I was handing out postcards. I was like, check out this young designer check. And then I would call him and be like, did you sell any yet? Did you sell any yet? And he sold them. And he's like, all right, give me two more on consignment. And then finally, finally, he, after I sold like 10, he, he accepted it and he bought some, (sighs) he bought like two, but still. But still, I mean, but, but still. So I, I, this is where I think a lot of listeners right now, we are in the inception of our business and we think that we're going to get to a magical place in our career where like no is never heard. And so what are some of the things that you like? How do you get this? Like, I actually heard an interview with you on Gary Vaynerchuk's podcast and I was like, this woman, she could take a beating. Like she takes no and then thrives on it. And I'm like, what do we do to like build up our spine? Like, what do we do to get used to no, embrace no, and then use no as like fuel? I take out the, um, you take out the emotion and that's easier said than done, but you look at the numbers on paper and I did this very type A again, early on, I had a graph paper and I was like, how many editors do I need to send an email to, to get one reply? How many, how many postcards do I need to send out to get one sale? And then to me, it was just an equation of how much outflow equals what inflow? And then you're not looking at, oh, all these people said, no, you're just like, I got to up my, my ante here. I got to, you know, so even if I go, I'm throwing a dinner in the Hamptons and everyone now wants to be paid to attend everything. How many f- people do I have to invite to a dinner where I'm not going to pay you to come to get someone to come, you know? And so mm. I'm not, I'm no longer rejected. Like she doesn't want to come. Okay. It's because she wants $10,000 to show up. Well, we don't have that next. And it just becomes a less personal decision and just more about the math. And I apply that as often as possible. And and for me, it's taken the sting out of it. Of course, there are the times when it really does sting. We were declined by someone we wanted to work with and given some really harsh feedback and that hurt. And I'm not going to lie and say it doesn't ever hurt. And then I was like, all right, cool. Next, you know, like it hurts for a minute. But I, I also think you, I've been doing this for 20 years. You get a little bit of a thick skin because people are criticizing you as a designer every day, whether it's your customer or a buyer, mm-hmm. I've, I've heard it enough that it's not as terrible as it used to be. So I want to repeat back the thing I've heard because sometimes I want to slow down the conversation to actually let it sink in. Rebecca just said, number one, the more she asks and the more she makes it an equation. If she's not getting yeses, it's not that the no's are personal. She's just saying, I need to do more work. I need to send more emails. I need to print more postcards. I need to invite more celebrities to the Hamptons. And on the off chance that that feedback does come back and it is negative, she doesn't stop there. She takes it, iterates, and then moves on. However, we talk about the things that didn't happen, but we also know that you've done collaborations with Jessica Simpson and Lindsay Lohan and Hillary Duff. Like These are massive collaborations. Like How have you scaled your business by way of collaborations? Now, I know we're not going to talk about an auto, automobile company, but like from my perspective, specifically when it comes to social, what we were once looking at as social, like social has become the next television. And so now celebrities and collaborations look different. What does this look like for you on a grand scale? And then for a small business owner listening right now, how do you approach collaborations to think, oh, this is going to be a win-win for both parties. So with the people that you named, those weren't exactly, the collaboration I did with Jessica Alba was more of um, a joint, not only charitable effort, but uh, bag design. The other ones were more just them wearing my stuff. 
How we approach collaborations now is we always aim for a brand that has something we don't have, right? That, ha- that has definitely the same or adjacent customer base, but has a halo or a cool factor. We're, we're doing these incredible uh, shoes with Sperry, which is, you know, known for its like dock boating shoes, but they have um, heritage as a brand. And we said, okay, let's add our studs to it. Let's add fringe. And so I think we approach collaborations in, can it, can it get us a new audience that's potentially similar to ours? And does it add some sort of halo to the brand? And I think if you're a small brand, you might be like, well, no one knows who I am. And sometimes you have to start with, you know, trying some things. Uh, In the beginning, no one knew who we were, but we just said, let's pursue the partnerships that can give us that next leg up. Is Casio watches the the ultimate fit? That was Mm -hmm. one of my first collabs. I don't know. You could do the numbers and say that maybe it wasn't, but it gave us money that we needed as a brand. It gave us a ton of free press and visibility and new customers. And so while we're pickier now about it, because we're much bigger in the beginning, we weren't quite as picky. So I'd say to small businesses, if there's a mutually beneficial money, customers, audience, press, and you're not compromising yourself, you're not like a environmentally friendly brand partnering with Exxon Mobil, like there's probably some synergies there that can be worked out. So again, I'm going to repeat back what Rebecca had said, is that even if you feel, you could tell yourself that you don't are bringing something that's equal or a value to a collaboration, the idea is that the success of a collaboration is not measured in just money. There are different things that you could bring to the table and also receive from a collaboration. So when it goes back into collaboration, I know that you are a founder and I'm going a little bit off like my notes, but you are a founder for the Female Founder Collective. Now, first, number one, explain a little bit more about the Female Founder Collective. And then number two, can you walk us through an example or how collaborations work on that scale? Yes. So I felt very strongly in 2018 that women and our frustrations about pay inequity, the glass ceilings, the non-equal opportunities were given. We were just talking to ourselves and nothing was changing. Like it was just a bunch of angry women being like on a panel, ranting about it. And then you wouldn't see any statistics change at all. And to me, money is power. And money is influence and money can change conditions. And so I was like, how do we get women more money? Oh, we need to provide educational resources to founders who start their businesses like me with a passion and then wake up when I'm like, oh, I don't know how to do this. I don't know the business side. How do I manage this? I wanted there to be community because while many think collaborations are, you know, a new design or something like that, collaboration can also just be like, I have a and I need a and those two things match up. And then I wanted a recognizable seal so that you could know when you turn the back of your packaging and it's on over 3 million products today that you are supporting a woman. You know, we can all go one block Mm -hmm. further and not buy at Starbucks and buy at Betsy's. And Mm -hmm. that incremental change will give women more wealth and more power. So we've grown to over 12,000 members. I only have to get another 12 million in order to hit all the women-owned businesses in (laughs) in the United States. And I think the collaboration that occurs there is a lot of I have, I need a. And um, opportunities that are just sent first. Do you want to invest? Do you need an investor outside of the education piece? I just think, Mm -hmm. you know, we try to match these women as closely as possible with peer groups of people that are in their same stage and size. And so the, the cross flow of sharing, right, can impact a woman's business, anyone's business. Mm-hmm. Um, and while I don't know of many shortcuts, I do know that if someone gives you a new resource or a product or a tip or what didn't work, 
That is an incredible and valuable opportunity. Oh, so good. So what kind of person are you when you walk into an event when it comes to networking? Like describe who Rebecca is in that professional capacity. You walk in a room because I've been very open. Like I walk into a room and the first thing I do is I have my back is against the wall and I'm by the fried food station. I just want to watch. I've never been the person to jump in. So what does Rebecca do? And then how do you, what are some things that you've learned so that we can expedite our growth? Yes. Um, I'll tell you who I was and who I am now. Who I was Mm. back in the day was anyone who will talk to me because no one knows who the F I am. And I used to come home at night and like count business cards like they were cash. I'd be like, I met this person, this person, this person, this person. (laughs) Um, Now I walk into a room and I I don't want this to come off as snobby or whatever, but like if I'm going to leave my kids and my family for the night, I, I need to get something out of being there. So who can I bump into that's inspiring? Who can I speak to that uh, maybe leads to the next collaboration? But if I don't come home feeling like it was productive either from a spiritual perspective in like meeting a kindred spirit or some work opportunity, to me, that's a night I could have spent with my kids. So I'm much more laser focused when I am going out. And then there's other times and that's for work related things. And then when I'm just going out, when it's for personal, like I don't care who's there. I'm just there to enjoy myself. So when you go to the networking events, are you getting like a cachet of people who you want to connect with? Like how intentional are you going into a room or are you just immediately cutting off conversations? You're like, I'm not being spiritual filled. I don't think that this is going to be a connection that I can leverage in other ways. Like what's actually the methodology? I give it the college try. And if I'm like, we're not going to be best friends and we have no similar interests, (laughs) like you are a toothpaste manufacturer you know, I'll wind it down very nice. I'm never mean. And again, I don't approach this as some like, Ooh, I'm here to use people, but that's what these events are for. You're there to network. You're there to, to give and receive things. And so then I'll just, you know, I got to go to the bathroom. I got to get a drink. Do you want me to get you anything? I mean, it's very free flowing. It's not like I go and with an agenda. Right. Okay. So when you talk about collaborations, like how has that changed over your career? Because it used to look a very specific way. And now when it comes to social media, like what are you deeming? Like oftentimes we have conversations with micro influencers for somebody who has such a large business and brand. What, where do you guys find the value? How diversified is your approach when it comes to collaborations, when it comes to getting endorsements, when you had said dinner at the Hamptons and that person wants $10,000, that's not going to be the case. Like how has it changed? And then what kind of advice do you have when it comes to diversifying the way that you have people talking about your business? I think there's where we want to be and where we are now. And we took a huge hit Mm. during COVID. And so while I'd love to have an always on micro and nano influencer strategy, you know, paying people consistently, we sort of, uh, right now with our cash flow, are only able to activate around like key events like a fashion week where we did pay someone to attend our show. And that someone was not only being paid just because it was her, but it's who her friends are. It's who she brought. So we really looked far deeper than she's coming. She's going to do a post and then she's going to leave. And then afterwards we're like, let's meet up. What else can we do together? So we like to go deeper with anyone we partner with. But if we had enough money, just all this extra cash that we would magically have, we would definitely have an always on. And so you're never just seeing my bag appear in a feed and then never again. And, and we're also being more thoughtful. Let's look at each person that we want to work with. If they're only carrying Chanel and Louis Vuitton and St. Laurent, and then they see a Rebecca Minkoff, their customer is going to be like, oh, she was paid for that. And that doesn't benefit anyone. Mm. So we're also trying to find organically girls who would want to wear our product and who have been seen wearing our product. So the pool becomes 
a lot narrower when you start slicing and dicing all those ways. So you had mentioned something about COVID and I know based on previous conversations you've had, well, I creepily stalked everything you've done was about how you pivoted so strongly in 2020 and what happened in 2020? How did you pivot? And then what are the after effects now in 2021 that you're experiencing? Yeah. So, um, we all started working from home on March 16th, on March 22nd, all the orders from every single one of our department stores started getting canceled. 70% of our business was wholesale driven, you know, the Saks, Neiman Marcus, Nordstrom, Bloomingdale's, they all had to close. It's not like they were trying to be mean and they had to cancel all their orders mm-hmm. in order to stick around. So overnight we lost 70% of our business and all we had was our e-commerce site. And so as a, as a company, we definitely faced going under and we had to do layoffs and furloughs and pay cuts. And literally the extra, the math exercise was what do we need to pay our team mm-hmm. and the rent? you know, and, and that was it for a while. And so what it forced us to do was grow our own vegetables from our own backyard. Uh, what it forced us to do was really go in every day going, what did we do and how can we do better? Not how did it sell there? What do they like? Mm. What did they need from me? And so as these, as these stores came back and I'm so excited they have, they come to us and it's just a different conversation. You know, we're a lot more conservative in what will allow them to order the the power dynamic of we want to work with you we want to support you but you are not going to be the person that i wake up thinking about first you come second and i think mm-hmm. that shift has enabled us to build a much more profitable business a much stronger business and one where now they can't get enough stock you know now we're selling out of things and we're just like okay good before we never wanted to be out of stock god forbid mm-hmm. the customer had to wait a day and now we're like we'll have goods for you in a month and we all are okay with that. So I think as hard as it was, and it was the hardest I've ever worked in my life, there have been some incredible silver linings. So in your latest book, Fearless, which I'm absolutely obsessed with because the way that you speak so confidently, it really does show a relentless pursuit of being fearless, even in the face of fear. There are a lot of business owners right now who, just like you, were learning how to pivot, going direct to consumer, figuring out e-commerce, doing a lot of iterations and uh, pivots within their business. What kind of advice would you give a person who at this point where you can say, the stores have come back, we're now changing our business. There is a group of people who are like, I still am living in the uncertainty. What would you tell them right now? I don't have a one-size-fits-all advice because it's so different Mm. by industry. If you are in a COVID-adjacent business, it looks like they want to keep this thing going. So good luck, you know, good on you for having those supplies. But I struggle with giving a one-size-fits-all. I mean, the only thing I could say is that out of many hard times, there have been extraordinary brands that have been forged and built. And if you just go back to the recession... And you look at what came out of the recession in 2008, 2009, you got Mm. Uber, you got Airbnb, you know, like you, I'm sure there's a slew of others that came out of extreme change, extreme turbulence, and now are these huge companies. So you could be one of those diamonds that's being molded under pressure. Speaking of being molded under pressure, oftentimes people will say they've made mistakes in business and it's taken me a while, but I now really try to reframe a mistake as a lesson. Were there lessons that you learned that maybe at the time felt like a mistake? And like, what did you learn as a result of that? I think that I thought for a while that the you know, there was this trend again in 2008, 2009, like become a billion dollar brand. Look, you know, everyone's mm. doing it. And you saw that's when Michael Kors got big and Kate Spade and Tory Burch and Mark by Mar Jacobs. And we were like this little engine that could, and we had a great size business. 
but did we need to be a billion dollar brand? Like, had I known now the stress that came with trying to do that, trying to make that jump, which requires so much money, it doesn't just Mm. organically happen that you get to grow to be a billion dollars. I would have just said, you know what? I'm cool with being a $20 million profitable business. Like I can live a nice life. So can everyone else, you know, and, and not have that intense of like, oh, we got to do this. And if we don't do it, we're failures, you know? Mm. So on the back of like the things that you've learned about becoming or choosing to become or not choosing to become a billion dollar business. And then looking back and being like having a $20 million business where everybody gets paid and it's like an amazing life. Were there things that had happened that were like a, such a surprise specific on social? Did something happen where you're like, whoa, that was completely unexpected. And this is something that we learned from it. On social media. I wish. No. <laughs> Wow. No. Okay. So what what is like the Rebecca Minkoff strategy on social? Like how do you guys perceive it as part of like the marketing umbrella for your business? I mean, it's, you know, to us, it's the magazine that you look at as you enter the brand. Um, I don't, I don't know about you and how you feel, but the purchasing amounts are still growing as people purchasing. But to me, Instagram has replaced Google. Like you go to Instagram first for mm-hmm. everything. So we're definitely we have a strategy and a presence there. I think our goal long-term is to do a lot more video and have much more of an alive feed, Mm -hmm. just a staffing glitch right now, but it'll be a lot more video. But I think we want to storytell through our Instagram feed and we want to bring people into this feeling of uh, that you might get into a retail store when you come into, you know, one that you get online. And so that's kind Mm -hmm. of the strategy right now. I just love hearing your perspective. One of the things that you had said is that Instagram has become Google. You go there now for search. And I think that's so powerful to hear it from somebody with your size business and your experience. Um, as we kind of close things up, when we think about like your experience, what you've done, as you're leading the charge in your business organization and when it comes to vision, as a female founder, as a leader, how what kind of advice do you have for people to convey their vision to make sure it's executed by other team members? This is a good one. And I'm glad you asked this question because I was of the mindset that I had to be like the mother, the den mother in the office and come to me with your tears and I can fix it. And all I did was just get enmeshed in like the tit for tat bullshit that occurs between employees. And it happens at every company. And I thought it would improve our culture. Didn't. And instead, my days became so much more stressful because I was trying to like tame the, you know, the water cooler drama that can exist. And so for me, it took a friend of ours who has a very successful apparel business, and, and this might sound like, duh, but he said, you are paying someone money and you are paying them money that you could either put in your own back pocket or hire someone else for. So it doesn't matter how much I'm trying, I'm trying so hard, but I really tried to do that. It doesn't matter how much they say that. If they are not exceeding your expectations, helping you lay bricks faster, making your life, not your personal life, but your work life, if you're not contributing to growth, they have to go and they have to go fast. And so you can lead with strength, you can lead with empathy, but you can also demand that the people who you are giving your money to and not yourself, that they come in every day and they are there and they're in it. And so I like to hire what I call generals. They are people that get the job done. They are people that are thinking one step ahead of you. And those are the people that are valuable. And if you don't have those within your organization, you need to 
get rid of them fast. Oh, I could not have imagined ending this conversation with a more powerful note. It is freedom in understanding that there is power in hiring generals and freedom in understanding that you're paying somebody to make you grow and move faster. And if they are not doing those things, that is not beneficial to the business. Rebecca Minkoff, you are a force. You are so generous with your time. Thank you for pouring into listeners, into women. How can people connect with you on social? Where would you like to point people to? So I'll point you two places. You can follow me at Rebecca Minkoff. You can follow at the Female Founder Collective. If you are a women-owned business, I urge you to apply at thefemalefoundercollective.com. You can listen to my podcast, Super Women with Rebecca Minkoff, and buy my book, Fearless, which is available everywhere. You are incredible. Ladies and gentlemen, if you found this conversation helpful in any way, shape, or form, be sure to tag Rebecca. Let's share the goodness and the goodness that she's putting out into the world. I hope you have a great day. Thank you, Rebecca, a thousand times over. Thank you so much, Jasmine. So there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Jasmine Star Show. Like I mentioned at the top of the show, I'm about to share with you a way in which you oh yeah, I am talking to you. You could win a completely free coaching session with me. All you have to do is leave an iTunes review for the Jasmine Star Show by finding the Purple Podcast app and clicking write a review. Then you can just simply screenshot it and head to jasminestar.com forward slash review contest. That link is here in the show notes. 10 lucky winners will be chosen to attend a group coaching session. And guess what? Oh, as if that's not enough, but wait, there's more. We're going to air that episode on the Jasmine Star Show. We're getting super meta, y'all. Can you imagine how much fun it's going to be, not just to like talk about business and get my feedback, but to get thousands of eyes and ears on your business by being on this podcast? Oh, yes. This is such an amazing opportunity for us to connect and I can get to know you personally. So submissions for the review contest close at midnight Pacific on October 31st, 2021. So leave your review, screenshot it and head to jasminestar.com forward slash review contest to enter today. 